Hello there, and welcome to episode 13 of The Game Pit. This is another one of our Vault episodes, where we're going to propose four games for entry into The Game Pit Vault. So, Sean and I take two games each, and we start by doing an introduction about the game, and start talking about why we like them, and why we think they are worthy of a place in the vault alongside the best of the games around. Then the other person is going to play devil's advocate at the first half of the episode. And they're going to start throwing out some of the problems that may be with the games along the lines of some of the negative feedback that the game has received. And the person who's nominated that game is therefore going to defend it against those claims. Afterwards, we're then going to have a general discussion about all four games. And we're going to try and whittle them down to just two. And then ultimately, it's just one that's going to be going into the game pit vault. So, two games I'm going to nominate for today are going to be Lords of Vegas and Tigris and Euphrates. And Sean? And my two are going to be Ticket to Ride and Pillars of the Earth. So, we'll see which game is going to find its way into the vault alongside our first submission from a few months ago, and that was Dominion. And don't forget, you can catch us on 2d6.org along with a whole host of other gaming goodness. So, first off from me, I'm going to propose that Ticket to Ride goes into the Game Pit Vault. I'm going to focus on Ticket to Ride Europe, but what I'm really talking about is the whole family of games. So this is by Days of Wonder, designed by Alan R. Moon, who's done the 10-day series, Airlines, Ink and Gold, Island Dorada, Union Pacific, and a few others. The player numbers are 2 to 5. And the suggested playing time is about 60 minutes, but obviously that's going to depend on the actual player numbers. So what's it about? It's a train-themed game with hand management, set collection, and route building. And that's pretty much it. It's a very simple game. So how do you play it? Each player will collect cards in order to build or claim railway routes across Europe. The longer the route, the higher the points value. You can also gain points by fulfilling destination tickets by connecting two cities... And again, the further apart they are, the more points you're going to get. And at the end of the game, you get points for any unused stations. We'll talk about them later. And for the single longest route on the board. So on each player's turn, they may do one of the following. They may claim a route by playing enough cards of the same color. They can draw two cards, either from the five face-up cards that are on the table in front of you or the face-down deck. You can draw more destination tickets. You start with a few, but you can draw some more and you draw three, but you must keep at least one of these. And at the end of the game, if you've connected these two cities, you'll get the points printed on the ticket. And if you haven't, you're going to get those points subtracted from your score. Uh, the last option, this is Ticket to Ride Europe only. You can place a station that allows you to claim another player's routes for purposes of fulfilling your destination ticket. The game ends when a player has two or fewer trains left after their turn, then everybody gets to go one more time. And here are some of the finer points. There are locomotive cards available, and these are effectively jokers. They represent any colour when building a route. Some of the routes on the board are grey, and you can use any one colour to claim them. In Ticket to Ride Europe, it has ferry routes. I think it's only one of the two games that has ferry routes. Ferry routes can only be claimed with locomotives. Now, lastly, there are some routes with different outlines to the main bulk of them, and these are tunnels. When building a tunnel, you have to draw three cards from the deck, and if one of them matches the colour that you've played to build the tunnel, 
you must provide another card in this color. And if all three, you'd have to provide another three. So it's difficult to build tunnels. I think the theory is you don't know how far you're going to be digging in. And that's it. It's not the most difficult game in the world. And once the game concludes, players add up their unpaid stations, uh, all held destination tickets, completed and unfulfilled, are added together. And the reward for the longest route is given to the person with the longest route. That's it. The winner has the most points. A very simple game. Why do I want this game in the Game Pit Vault? We're going to start with design. The design of this game is it's very well put together. It's beautiful component quality. Everything is easy to see. It's very bright, very cheerful. The cards are durable. It does everything it needs to make this game accessible. And that's the key word for this game for me is accessible. First off, the game handles all the suggested players very well. It handles two players just as well as it handles five players. It's a slightly different game, but it plays well with two players and all the way through to five. It still sits very much at the fun table, this game, no matter how many people you're playing. We spoke recently, in our last episode, in fact, about a game called Discworld Ankhmore Pork being a gateway game to bring new games into the hobby. And Ronan had his issues about the playability of the game beyond that purpose. Now, this is where Ticket to Ride comes into its own. Ticket to Ride is playable by gamers and new people alike. It's a brilliant gateway game. It's one of the games I always look to bring when I've got new people that I want to get interested in the board game culture. But you'll also see experienced gamers playing this and getting just as much out of it. It's not the most tactical game in the world. But it's fun, and it's always going to be fun, and it's always interesting because you don't know what cards you're going to get. You're constantly having to readjust. There is an element where you can block people out. I suppose Ticket to Ride Europe is the least harsh in that terms because of the stations. The stations allow you to actually fulfill your tickets without being completely blocked out, mostly. So, But there is that element where you can block people out, and you can watch where they're trying to go, and you can try to stop them, or you trying to sneak around your own route without showing people where you're going so definitely for me you can still play this game no matter how far you are into your gaming journey to round up for me and it is a very very quick plea because this game is so simple and so fun it's a simple intuitive elegant game for everyone to enjoy not every game has to be three hours long and make your head hurt so don't listen to the gaming snobs and go and have some fun Okay, so my role now is just to, uh, not this is not my personal opinion, but to throw out some of the negatives towards Sean and give Sean a chance to argue against any detrimental comments that I make and therefore allow him to build a case for Ticket to Ride to get into the vault. So the first one for you, Sean, is this game is just far too simple to be considered a classic. Uh, well, I'm obviously going to disagree, but and I think it's, it's simplicity that makes it a classic. The fact that it is so simple, but yet it still holds the interest. And I've seen seasoned gamers. I've seen people who've finished games of dominant species and gone into Ticket to Ride because it has its place on the table. If you're experienced at this game and you're playing with experienced people, you can quite easily really make it almost like a filler. I know it will still take you 45 minutes to an hour with experienced people, but all of that time is filled with fun. And there is enough interest for the season gamers as I've, as I've stressed to keep them interested in the game 
And I think it was important to me to bring a lighter game to the table and say, this is one of the games I want to go in the vault, just to show that these games can actually be fun. The heart of the game is simple set collection. I can play a, a good card set collection game in 20 minutes. Why am I going to spend three or four times as long playing this? I think with Ticket to Ride, it's not just a set collection. Obviously, that is the heart of the game. That's what drives the game. But the fact that you can see your claimed routes or your railways sprawling across Europe or sprawling across Asia and uh, the United States of America, it adds a little bit more to the game. And it's not just you're collecting your sets. You're trying to get these lines and this sprawling map of your network onto the board and and the fulfilling of the tickets adds that a little bit more and i'm talking about um, ticket to ride europe more often than not here but with the ticket to ride series they bring a little bit more to each one for instance i think it's the marklin edition that brings passengers to the to the four uh the map collection team asia volume one that brings team rules and triple routes and there's mountain routes going on and there's different scoring for crossing over different countries in the Deutschland version so and and so on and that just shows you that there is so much more to explore than just simple set collection in this series it's a light game and you build it as a gateway game but it's completely anti-social it doesn't encourage discussion in fact it discourages discussion and it's just multiplayer solitaire yeah it's not the game primary goal is to be to be interactive so i i do buy that to a certain degree but it depends on your gaming group surely there are lots of things that will lead to interaction. People grabbing the last color that you need or people blocking you off so you can't fulfill one of your tickets or that's when somebody claims a massive route and gets, I think it's 21 points or 28 points. I can't remember what the top score is and you've been saving up for that one. And there is there is a lot of interaction. I think it's down to your, your gaming group really. But it's not the primary goal see this game played by families and there's lots of chat going on and people who are good friends and people who aren't and there's still lots lots of chat going on so i think it's it's highly dependent on who you play this with i'm trying to sell this game to people new to the hobby and it's completely abstract there's no thematic hook whatsoever to get them interested now this one's a a play and see game it's a game about trains. If you're not interested in trains, nobody's going to buy the theme. The theme is very loosely tacked on. All of the editions are really bright and cheerful and maybe not so much the 1912 version because that's toned down, but that's because it's trying to be thematic. People only need to play around with this. and go, oh, I get it. Okay, so that's what I'm doing. And they're off. And this game becomes one of those games and it has been proven to become one of those games that gets people into the hobby it gets people down playing board games they think oh i'll give another one a go and they slowly get deeper and it's this game that is the springboard for them getting into probably deeper euro games i'm not sure about the american style games whether this really gets people into that but i'm sure it does it just gets people down playing games which is the the main thing for, again, a gateway game, the accidental screwage, the chance of it is just too high. Someone could be planning and trying to build a route, someone else grabs the area that they need, and then suddenly they feel like they're out of the game and they've been screwed over. You're never out of the game. You can still pick up more tickets and try and come back that way, or you can just try to eke out as many points from the rest of the route as possible, try and build the longest route, which gives you points. Uh, it's very rare that 
if you're going for something off the bat, you're going to get blocked from all avenues. Quite often, you've just got to plan a new route around. And yeah, it might take you longer, but you, there's usually a way around. Now, that's why I tend to play Ticket to Ride Europe, because that can become frustrating. But a lot of people love that element of the game. And that's why the, there's so many versions of this game and so many different things bring, it brings to the plate in these different versions that there is a ticket to ride for you somewhere. One of them is a ticket to ride for you. If you're not the very best person at getting stitched by getting blocked and that really upsets you, get a ticket to ride Europe. Then you can get a station. And the station, yeah, loses your four points at the end of the game, but it might make that 21-point connection for you. I don't buy that. There's no way of getting better at this game apart from via memorization of the destination tickets. So you don't develop skills, you just develop your memory. No, it's it's a reactionary game. And that's fine. To constantly be just reacting to things that are happening is what this game's about. There's no real strategy you can set out and decide, okay, I'm going to go down this path or this path, and this is the ticket that I'm going to complete. No, you don't. You get them randomly. You get the cards, the set collection cards randomly, and people are going to randomly come across your, your line and randomly block you, and you've got to adapt to that. And that is a skill in itself and a strategy in itself, is how quickly you can adapt to things. In each version, there's absolutely no variety in each play. It's exactly the same. You don't have to make any decisions about how you're going to play the game. You just follow what tickets you've drawn and do it. The game never changes. There are decisions, but they're subtle decisions. You might decide that you're going to block people off. You might decide you know where someone's going and you're going to stop them. You might go for the longer point scoring ways round for your ticket rather than the direct route. The other additions bring other things into it, like passengers, as I've said, and the scoring changes. And there's even a... Halloween freighter, which makes it all Halloweeny. For me, there are, there are decisions, there's subtle decisions, and the variety is there for me. And it, but that's down to you to find a variety. It is there for you, and they've gone to great lengths. As I said, they're not. It's not the game changes. They won't buy the Nordic countries version and go, oh my god, it's a whole new game. It's not. It's a slight variance on Ticket to Ride. That's what you're gonna get. The luck when drawing destination tickets is far too influential. If you get destination tickets that match up with each other or towards the end of the game, if you're lucky to draw destination tickets that you've done or have almost done, it's a huge advantage and there's no skill in that. There's no skill in random draws of anything, but you can choose to not take the tickets. I think you only have to take one ticket. So you can take more tickets. You can even keep going until you get things that are set up. Or you can say, you know what, yeah, they're, they're far... They're, they're quite a distance apart. So I'm going to go for the longest route as well as complete my destinations. So it, it can be adapted. It's not complete luck and there's definitely choices to be made. The game actually becomes more boring as you get into it because your options become more limited and there's less things you can do. There's no decent arc of culmination to something. It starts off interesting with the board wide open and then it closes down as the game progresses. I feel the opposite, actually. I think when it starts open, everything's available to you. Everything's uh, out there. You can place your trains wherever you need to. It's at the end, when everything really starts to narrow down, as you said, that the tension comes into the game when you're really, really struggling to find that way around or you're hoping that somebody doesn't go, go via Amsterdam because you need to finish at Amsterdam and somebody's already claimed one of the routes to Amsterdam. 
and you don't want to use your station and I think that's when it comes into its own. The cards are thinning out. You know, there's been a whole rake of green cards have come through and you just need two to finish off your whole route and your longest route and you're going to win the game. And can you get those green cards or a locomotive? I think that's the bit that gamers enjoy. And I think there's the tension and that's the bit where there is a little bit of nervousness towards the end. And I think that's a good thing. Okay, my last point on Ticket to Ride is this is just a cash cow. Days of Wonder are just pumping out the same game again and again and again, and I'm fed up of seeing different versions of it around. I think the different versions mostly, uh, I say mostly, do just enough to make it different enough to be worth a buy. Now, I think the beauty of this is, I've touched on it before, is that there's versions for everyone. I see people who absolutely love the marketing edition, but despise the the original ticket to ride or people like the Europe version and hate the USA 1910 expansion to ticket to ride and things like that. You probably wouldn't want to have the whole set because you're going to have the same game in an effect seven or eight times. But I think the variances are just enough to give people favorites and that makes the game more accessible. And that's what this game is about is an accessible game to everybody. Okay, Sean, would you like to sum up why you think Ticket to Ride should be put into the vault? I think I've pretty much covered it. The main word for me was accessible. It's accessible to everyone. I've just stressed that point. It's a beautifully crafted, elegant game. It's not a brain burner. It's not a deep, thinky Euro. It's a fun game for all the family, for people of all ages and all gaming experience to enjoy. Driving down the highway so my first submission to try and get it into the vault this time around is lords of vegas now lords of vegas is published by mayfair games who are famous for a whole ton of games including my other submission um, that's going to come later on and it was designed by james ernest who's also designed games such as uh, Kill Dr. Lucky and Gloria Mundy, and Mike Slinka, who had a hand in the new version of Betrayal at House on the Hill, Axis and Allies, Risk Godstorm. The game is for two to four players, although it's definitely best with four players. And the suggested playing time is 60 minutes, which I think is a bit ambitious. Give yourself two hours for this one and you'll fill it in nicely in that time. Now, Lords of Vegas is themed around the development of Vegas in the 50s. So the game board represents the potential areas that you're going to be building casinos on with the strip going right down the middle. The game comes with a bunch of dice in the four player colours. You've got some player markers, like little tiddlywinks basically you're going to use to to show where you've got control of areas on the board. There's a whole ton of casino tiles, which are in five different colours. Now they're not linked to player colours, they're linked to cards that are drawn, which are going to tell you which type of casinos are going to score throughout the game. And those are the main components, as well as the money, of course. It's Vegas, there's got to be some money in there. Around the outside of the board, there's a victory points track, and that's how you're going to win the game. Whoever has scored the most points when the game end comes around is going to be the winner, and is going to be the Lord of Vegas. So how do you play? Well, there's these bunch of cards. Now, they represent all the different lots that are on the board. The board is split into squares, and they're going to be called lots during this game. And the squares represent potential areas where you can build casinos. Each player starts with 
their lot indicators showing in two different areas which are done by a random card draw. That's where they can start building their casino empire from. On a player's turn they're going to draw a card, they're going to claim that for free, it doesn't cost you any money and put a tiddlywink down on that area and say that's mine, that's my area. On the card that's drawn, there's also a colour of casino. So everyone who has casinos in that colour is going to earn some money and also going to score some points, hopefully. And play goes round and round and everyone draws a card and then takes a series of actions and so on and so on, attempting to develop casinos to make casinos bigger and to earn more money and to keep going and going and so forth. So what are the actions you can do? Because that's really where you're going to explain how the game works. The first one you can do, and it's the, the most vital one, is build. Each of these lots has got a build cost on it. Now you must be in control of a lot to be able to build on it, so you must have it marked out with your player marker. Now like I say, you start with two markers in certain areas, and you're going to get one every single turn by pulling a card that tells you where you can go. Now there's an interesting thing in this game, is that when casinos score is when the card of that corresponding colour is flipped over on anyone's turn. So you can score on anyone's turn. They score according to how big the casino is. So if you've got a casino that's just one tile big, you're going to score one point every time that colour card is drawn. That's fine until you get to eight points, because the victory point track is very interesting. From eight points onwards, it leaps up to 10, 12, 14. So it starts going in leaps of two. So unless you score at least two points at a time, you cannot move up that track anymore. So building a casino that's just one block big is not going to be very effective as you start going into the game. And also the gaps on the bridge point track become wider as the game develops. They become three points, four points, five points, all the way up to, at the very end, nine points. So in order to jump from 81 points to 90 points, which would win you the game, by the way, if you ever managed to do that, you have to have a nine-block-sized casino. If you've been following with how you get the lots, it's all random. It's going to be very difficult for you to be able to get them just on card draw. It's highly unlikely you'll get huge casinos built up. But that's where the heart of the game comes in. Everything can be traded. I'll come back to that. So the first one is build. You pay the money. You can choose any casino colour you like as long as there are tiles left in the supply of that. And there are only nine tiles of each colour. So like I said, you don't have to have a nine-size casino in order to win the game completely on 90 points. There's only nine of them. So because of that limited supply of casino tiles, people are able to keep an eye on things. They're able to block you. If they're looking to see you're going to expand in silver, they might try and buy up the silver ones and build them. And then suddenly you've got a negotiation tactic there because one of the hearts of this game is everything is open for negotiation. Although you might own a lot by having your piece on it, that doesn't mean you're stuck with that particular lot. It means you can swap with each other, you can do deals, you can offer money, you can offer casinos, you can move dice, you can swap dice around. Dice, I hear you say. What have dice got to do with it? Well, as well as having a cost, each lot has also got a dice value. Now, the more expensive lots have got the higher dice values on them. So, for example, a lot that's very valuable that costs 20 million to build on is going to have a value 6 in and when you build a casino in there you mark it as being yours by putting a dice of your colour in it and you put it with the size 6 face up. Why is that important? In any casino it's not necessarily true that only one person will be in there. Lots of people could have a presence in the casino. It doesn't matter how many dice people have in there Whoever has the highest value dice controls that casino. And that's the person who's going to be scoring points and making money from that casino. So if Sean, for example, had four dice in a casino and they were all twos, and I had one dice in there that was a six, my six would mean I was in charge of that five-block casino. So every time that colour card got drawn, I would be scoring the points for it. The good news for Sean is that he would be making money because as well as being who's in charge of a casino – 
how much money you make out of each lot is dictated by what the value of dice is on there. So there are dice in the game, but you don't necessarily roll them. They're, they're dictated their value by what's on the board. There's a chance to roll them later, and we're going to come back to that. So you can see in this build action, you're attempting to build up blocks of casinos, get them in certain colours, and you're attempting to score points from doing that. And it's no point trying to sit on just small casinos all the time, because eventually they'll become useless, or pretty quickly they'll become useless, and you're trying to build bigger and bigger and bigger. There's a real narrative there in Vegas of starting small with these small casinos and then getting larger and larger and larger. And the people who control the larger casinos are going to be scoring the most points and being the most successful. It sounds like it could be really frustrating if you're trying to build up a casino and the lots that you require to build into have not been drawn by people at the beginning of their turn because you cannot build on a, a space unless someone's got a lot in it unless you take the next action, which is sprawl. Now, in order to sprawl, you can go from any casino you own into any adjacent lot by paying double the price of normally building on that lot so if a lot would normally cost nine million dollars to build on if you pay 18 you can just build straight in there and pop your dice in there's a risk to that though because if someone subsequently draws the card for that lot on their turn your dice comes out and their dice goes in which obviously could be crucial if that's the highest dice in the casino because suddenly bang they're in even if it's not the highest dice in the casino suddenly someone else has got an interest in your casino and they might start attempting to messing with you or start to take it over which is what we'll come to in a second it's called uh, reorganization reorganization how does that work now this is one of the most fun things in the game that's when someone pays one million dollars for every pip on all the dice in a casino so let's say Sean had two dice in a casino that added up to eight pips, and I had three that added up to ten. If I pay this 18 pips in total, if I pay 18 million dollars, I can pick those five dice up and roll them. Why would I want to do that? Because let's go back to that scenario again. If Sean had two dice and I had three, but his had the highest value, so he had a six in there and I didn't have any sixes, he would be in charge of it, so he would be scoring the points all the time for that. But this reorganization gives me a chance to pick them up and roll them. And now I've got three dice against his two. And whichever is the highest which you roll out of those then becomes the casino boss. And you re-roll ties. So if we had two fives and the rest were lower than that, we pick up those two fives and we roll them again. That is one of the most interesting and fun things in the game. And you can tell that that's obviously a bit of random in there, a bit of chance. There is random. There is chance in this game. It is Lords of Vegas. Of course, there's going to be chance in there. But it's all mitigatable. It's all you can work on probabilities. Is it worth me risking that role when I've got three to two? Or should I be trying to negotiate with someone else if they've got a lot next door to the casino? Build on another casino tile there and make it four against two, for example. Always trying to mitigate against the, lot, the odds. The other thing you can do uh, is remodel. Now, remodel lets you change the color of a casino. So it costs you $5 million per tile that's in the casino. Why might you be doing that? Well, there are five different colors of cards. So it's purple, gold, uh, turquoise, silver, and brown. Now, let's say I've got a brown casino. There are only nine brown cards in the game. If seven or eight of them are out already, it's not likely that brown is going to score for me anymore. But say there's only three silver cards have been drawn, for example. I might want to remodel over to that silver color to make it more likely that I'm going to be scoring points at that casino. Or maybe I can see that Sean's attempting to develop in gold over on one side of the board. Maybe I'll remodel into gold this smaller casino over here to suck up some of those gold tiles. That both stops Sean from developing his casino to score lots of points. It also means that I'm in a strong negotiating position with him. You know, if I want something from him, I can say, well, I can free up these gold tiles for you, but you're going to have to pay me da 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 or give me that lot or take that dice out of that casino. 
everything's open for negotiation. There's a lot of wheeling, dealing, backstabbing, trying to work out what's right for you at the right time. The final thing you can do is gamble. Now, this is a, this really is luck. This is you can choose someone, go to one of their casinos and roll dice. And on a roll of 2, 3, 4, 9, 10, 11 or 12, they have to give you money. However much you've gambled, they give it back to you. If you roll a 5, 6, 7 or 8, which is slightly more uh, likely than rolling all those other numbers, you have to pay them the money you gambled. Now, if you're the house, if you're the person they're coming to gamble against, you can lay the odds away so that you're at less risk. Those are the actions you can take in the game. So you're trying to use these five actions. You can use them in any order on your turn. The only thing that's fixed is you have to turn that card, pay out the casinos in that color, and place your tiddlywink on that lot that you've got. The rest of them are all fluid. You're, you're, you're going this way, that way. You're chatting to everyone. People, hopefully, especially as the game develops, will be throwing deals at you left, right, and center, and you're trying to work out the relative value of them. Why do I like Lords of Vegas so much? And why do I think it's worthy of a place in the vault? Well... You start with nothing. You start with an empty board and then you put six or eight, depending on how many players are playing tiddlywinks down and that's all you're looking at going, there's nothing here. Everyone's going to make a little bit of money. You start slowly because every turn, any empty lot that you own, you haven't built on, you're going to get a million dollars for it. As people are slowly creeping in and you're slowly getting more lots as you, as you go around and every turn of a card, you take lots and then you Maybe build your first one size casino and that's going to start giving you a point here and a point there and maybe a few million more million dollars. And you start growing and developing and the board starts developing and then the narrative of the game starts developing. Because when you start off, there's not too much going on. You don't know what anything's worth to anyone else. You don't know what direction people are going to go in. But as the board develops and the game develops, people become more powerful and the scoring happens and more colours of certain cards come out. So certain casinos become more likely to pay out later on. Suddenly the game starts developing and it really feels like you're going from nothing into this bustling, successful, multi-million dollar city, that multi-billion dollar city that we have in Vegas. There's a narrative there of growing power and actually growing corruption and growing nastiness and growing sticking each other over and trying to persuade people people that the deal you're trying to make for them is best for them and not just going to hand you the game as much as it feels like the development side of vegas it also feels like the fun side of vegas it's all about mitigating odds this game it's all about taking risks but calculated risks if i sprawl into that area is it worth spending all that money to do it you know will a card flip over that's going to screw me and put another dice in there or if i go in there should i re-roll them so that, that dice isn't going to be so powerful is it worth me grabbing a space in that big casino in order to have a sort of a presence in there so that if anyone does re-roll the dice maybe I'll get lucky or maybe I've just got it as a negotiation tactic I'm like I'm in here but I don't have to be in here but you're gonna have to help me out over there the colors of the casinos that come out if I go towards purple because there's way more purples left in the deck than there are gold and then gold keeps constantly paying out you know you're like I've got unlucky on that one but it's fun it feels fun it feels like ah oh, you know we're, we're we're playing the odds here now not all the cards are going to come out in any game so it's possible that certain colors just will never pay and that is just funny especially when someone remodels and goes to a different color and then that run of cards starts coming out that they were in earlier yeah i've seen some uh, some sour looks from that hopefully from from my description you can see there's a real freedom of actions. There is no set path here. There's no, there's not even really phases. There's no like you have to do this before you can do that, before you can do that, before you can do that. You can do whatever you like. As long as it makes sense, it makes you money and that money you're going to convert into points by building better casinos. You can go and do it however you want to do it, however you think best. You've got complete freedom amongst the players to be able to swap things around and people are going to make deals that you're going to think you are crazy. Why are you doing that? And then maybe it pays out for them.
for them because they've seen something you haven't seen. There's an awful lot of table chat goes on of trying to persuade people or possibly bully them or trying to get the whole game to go in the direction you want it to go. This game is about odds, not chaos. You're trying to use these actions to, to, to control what's going on. Now, obviously, in a game that has got lots of odds in, you can get lucky. Someone can get lucky in that they can draw lots that are next to each other, so they don't have to spend as much money or sprawl or wheel a deal in order to start building up slightly bigger casinos. And also, the card draws can get lucky. If your colour keeps coming in, then, then great, you're, you're going to start doing better. But... Because there's so much interaction between the players, you can mitigate that between you. If someone's having real lucky lot draws, it's more likely, not necessarily explicitly by discussion, but it's more likely people are not going to trade so much with that person, and they're going to start trading with each other in an attempt to catch up with that person. They're going to go, look, 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 he's got three over there, and we've only got size ones, and look, I'm next to you, you're next to me. Let's just swap those lots and build, and then we can... And because it's so fluid, because there's so so much freedom, you can mitigate against the odds between you, and Generally, you try and keep things tight, and it tends to be that as the game goes on, people come together, and then it's the smarter moves that draws people away and gets the win in the end. One of the best things in this game, and one of the best things in any game, is when you have a big reorganisation. Now, the reorganisation is when you do that, pick up all the dice in the casino, roll them, and whichever colour comes up with the highest number, that's going to control the whole casino. Now, these are especially funny later on in the game, because they get more expensive the bigger the casinos are, but you're highly unlikely to have more than one or two really big casinos that are going to be paying out seven eight nine points on the whole board and people are, and also you shouldn't have anyone who's completely in control of one of those casinos that you, as a group you should be trying not to let that happen when someone picks up all those dice and they're doing the roll and you know that it's neck and neck and that the cards come in and now i haven't mentioned it but the strip runs up the middle of this board and there are special strip cards which pay out all the casinos that touch the strip. So it doesn't matter what colour they are. So building there is important. If you've got a big casino on the strip, also the game end card is a strip card. So it pays out all the casinos again touching the strip. If you've got a big roll right towards the end of the game or for a hotel that's on the strip that it's going to pay out eight points, could be the game swinger and it's four dice against five or three against three against three or what have you and just one dice is going to control that whole casino and score nine points, it's fantastic someone's gonna have to save for a couple of turns spend a lot of money to get this re-roll done everyone stands up around the table everyone's shouting and cheering it rolls someone's gonna be laughing someone's gonna be groaning it's brilliant it really brings it in that kind of everyone involved in what's gonna happen also it's a lot of it is about seizing the right time to make deals sometimes a deal makes sense one turn and then by the time it's gone around the board again it doesn't make sense anymore either because a different lot's come out or because different colors have come out or, or suddenly that lot i was desperate for well i just drew the lot next to it so i don't need it anymore so there's a lot of waiting and timing and looking at the board and seeing how the board's developed and taking a pounce and going i need that now if i take it now it's worth it to me if you hold off on me wait two or three turns maybe it won't be worth it to me anymore and it also means that there's subjective value in trades. You know, a trade that doesn't make sense to someone else might make sense to me right now. So that's why it's interesting. It's not like you, it's very hard to calculate exactly what everything's worth. It does depend upon what's going to happen. It does depend upon what area of the game you're in, what, to, what the timing is. So that's really interesting because every kind of turn, your decisions are slightly changing. Slightly changing by what someone else has done. Or, you know, if, if I want to buy this lot you've got next to my silver casino, but then suddenly the next guy buys all the silver tiles left. Well, I don't want to buy your lot anymore because I can't grow silver into it. I can't develop my casino. 
oh yeah, sure, I can remodel into a different colour and grow. Well, that's going to cost me more money. So now I'm going to pay you less for that lot because it's costing me more to do what I want to do. You see, everything changes. Everything's in flux and you've got to be aware of it. Everyone's turn affects what your decisions are going to be. I think the last positive point I'm going to make is that the scoring track, the fact that it takes jumps. So from one to eight, you can score small casinos. Then from... 10 points all the way up to uh, 20 points you can score with two-point casinos and then three and four what have you. That really dictates how the game develops. I think it's very interesting. can be frustrating because if you can't make that jump or, for example, if I'm on eight points and I've got a three-size casino that scores, I'll only go on to 10 points because I can't make the jump all the way up to 12, the two two-point jumps. So there is no 11 space on the board. So I have to, I'm stuck on 10. Sometimes you feel like you're wasting points. So, and you have to be aware of it. So you create a timing that really helps create the narrative. You cannot just play by yourself and try and grow small little things here and there. You have to work together. You have to somehow collaborate. You have to somehow get people to trust you in order to make the deals, in order to grow the bigger casinos. Lords of Vegas, you feel like you're a Lord of Vegas. You feel like you're someone who's developing and becoming rich and becoming powerful and playing the odds and becoming the winner. Sean, what are you going to hit me with? Okay. The box looks horrible and the board looks bland. The components, especially the paper money, are mediocre at best. The box is not great looking. I wouldn't say it's particularly important because I'm not looking at it as I'm playing it, but okay. The board, I don't think it looks bland at all. I think it looks lovely. It's a it's a top-down view of these lots. Now, it could be way, way blander. At least there's some artwork on there, and it makes sense. It looks like Vegas, and there's bright lights, but all the information is very clear because every lot has to have two bits of information in as in the dice, what value it initially is in its place in there, and how much money it costs to build in there. I just think you're wrong about the board. That's I don't understand that. Um, yeah, everyone hates paper money. Do you know what? I don't hate paper money. I don't mind paper money at all. But if you don't like paper money, there's paper money in this game. It's pretty obvious what you do. You put poker chips in, right? You're playing a Vegas game. So just do that. In terms of component quality, all right, you're not going to get blown away. It's not fantastic. There's not anything to say, oh, wow, those are amazing. But they all do the job. There's nothing particularly horrible. I think you're wrong about the board artwork. The dice are all sturdy and cool and... Yeah, all right. It's not an A. It's probably a C plus or B minus, but it's fine. And the game's much more important than the looks. Now you've already mentioned about working out the odds. This game is essentially a gambling simulation. Why not just go and play some roulette or back some horses? Well, the same reason as we play board games in lots of situations because back in horses. In fact, back in horses is a lot of fun. I like going to races, but I can't do it in my dining room for an hour and a half with my mates with that little preparation um, or playing roulette. Again, that's, that is completely random roulette. That's just, you know, either it comes in or it doesn't come in. This is not completely random. It, it's, you can mitigate against things. And also it's a shared experience. It's, it's the same way, you know, why do I prefer to play board game versions of games rather than the iOS versions? Well, because it's a shared experience and that's where a lot of the fun comes from, from me is that, everyone's turns important to everyone else and you're all chatting and you're all interacting it it is a group experience consistently for 90 minutes and that's what makes it fun this game is far too deep rooted in luck the shrewdest gameplay can be spoiled by a bad roll of the dice well you have to play well to win let's put it that way to start with if you're just horrible at the game you're going to get smooshed you have to be good at negotiating to get ahead so 
when you say the, the shrewdest gameplay, it depends what you think shrewdest gameplay is. If, if you think you're going to play it like a Euro and try and be efficient and build up your own little empire and, and not interact with anyone else, well, yeah, you will lose. You'll lose horribly. So if you think good gameplay is making everything look attractive and being able to get inside the heads of your competitors and talk them around into seeing your way of doing things. Also, it, a lot of it's to do with timing to mitigate against that luck. Like I keep saying, it's being able to think on your feet judge situationally and realize when is the right time to pounce. I might give away something that looks like I'm giving away a lot to get something that doesn't look that valuable now, but I can see that the game's going to develop into when that is going to be a key place to be in. And you've got to be able to do that. It's it's not sit down, have your plan for 90 minutes, an efficiency plan and develop that plan, all right? It's thinking all the time, reassessing, judging what's going on and making the best judgment call at that time. The game has a runaway leader problem, and the scoring is ridiculous and doesn't allow people to work their way back into the game. There's only chance of there being a runaway leader problem is if everyone else doesn't play well. Put it that way. Someone can get lucky, and they can't get an edge, and in that case, they're starting to make more money, and therefore they're starting to kind of edge ahead. Unless someone is incredibly, amazingly, I've never seen it lucky... They have to interact with everyone else to get big casinos in order to score points. So they might jump ahead and they might even get to the the three or four, even four point jumps in the game by themselves. They're not going to get any further. It's not going to happen. So this is the area in which I'd say one of the problems is that if you have a weak player who is only looking at themselves and not judging the board situation very well, then someone might, you know, if someone's got loads of money and they particularly want a, a lot, and they say, look, I'll give you 60 million for that lot, which is a ridiculous amount of money to be given away. And someone goes, yeah, great, 60 million, that's great for me. But you just handed that person the game. That was the one that they needed to join up a casino, make it an eight point, and, and now we can't get in there. And that's it, we're hosed. You, you do rely upon everyone being aware and, and going, look, that might you might be giving me a lot of money for that. But in terms of the game, it's just suicide to give it to you. There's no point. It's not happening. And then actually relying on everyone else to help them out with that and say, yeah, okay, but let's make a deal over here so I can give you some money to make it worthwhile not to make that deal. So, yes, there is an issue where you start making money, but you cannot win the game by yourself. You cannot win without negotiation and without trading. It's just impossible. The group should be smart enough to be able to make trades between themselves to start catching that person up. The game is too nasty and combative and doesn't manage to do it in the fun way that a game like Spartacus has managed. Oh my goodness me. You think this is more combative than Spartacus and more nasty? No way. Not a chance. You cannot really take things away from people. All right, you might grab a casino by a roll of a dice, but everyone can see what's going on there. You can't just whack someone and go, right. I'm taking 20 million away from you or I'm hitting you for a 10 point penalty like you can in Spartacus. Absolutely no way. It's not, I don't think it's actually that nasty. I don't think there's direct conflict in this game. I think there's kind of mm, pushing against each other in slightly different directions and therefore trying to play odds in order to get the edge over someone else. It's more about getting a slight edge rather than a direct conflict of bang, no, I'm cutting you down. There's not a chance in hell that this is nastier than Spartacus. That's lunacy. The trading is too haphazard and unfair alliances can form or other players can become kingmakers. The trading detracts from the game. The trading is the game. 
That, that is it. If you're playing this game without trading with each other, making you know the deals on the run or what have you, forget about it. It's boring. There's no point playing it. Uh, I have taught it to people before, and they've gone, oh, Worlds of Vegas, that's no good. It was just boring. It was just, oh, boring? Come here and play it with me. And then immediately, whether it actually is to my detriment or not, I'll start getting people to make trades, and suddenly their eyes light up and go, oh, it's it's not a game in which you can't trade. It's no fun if you don't trade. It is the whole heart of the game. Now, you talk about unfair alliances. Yeah, yeah but the alliances are always shifting. So your ally one turn next two revolutions of the board is suddenly your enemy because there's no point trading with someone just to make them win now in terms of kingmaker there can come a point where someone's got a presence in an area and it's between the two other people as to who is able to give them enough to take that presence and therefore get the edge so you've got you know two four casinos with a lot joining them in the middle that belongs to someone else obviously the person who takes that lot in the middle is going to have a five four advantage on any rolls going forward that's brilliant. That That's the crux of the game. That's fantastic. You know, that person who's got that one lot in the middle who isn't doing as well as those two people in the bigger casinos suddenly is in a position to catch up and go, right, what's it worth to you? What are you going to give me for it? You know, how many, give me that little small two casino over there that you don't want anymore. Give that to me, plus some money, plus this, plus that. What, what have you got to offer? Of course, the brilliant thing about it is if they don't manage to make that trade, if they try and push too hard, maybe next turn one of those two guys is going to draw the other lot that connects them and suddenly that lot that was worth a two-point casino and 50 million, what have you, is now worth nothing because they've got it now out of the draw. So again, that's a lot of the timing. And I mean, this is what trading is all about, right? You have to understand that what's valuable now might not be valuable tomorrow and you have to leap on the chance of, well, yeah, I'd like more for it, but, but I might not get anything further down the line. Is it worth me making that trade? I mean, that's the heart of the game. If you don't want to trade, don't play it. The game can only really be played with four players. Any less and it falls flat. It definitely falls flat with two. I would never even play it as two. That just seems ridiculous to me. Uh, with three, it's a good game. It's certainly playable. You do have to... Um, the game end comes. You, you put the card in a certain amount of way down the, the deck. Now, with three, you have to move it up a bit. Uh, in the deck because otherwise everyone has too many turns and you have a few turns at the end where everyone is completely set up on the board and it's not worth them trading anymore so there's definitely a timing issue in where you put that card so for a four player game you're supposed to pull it a quarter of the way up from the bottom of the deck so a quarter of the cards don't come out the way they set it up actually means that there's an uneven amount of turns per player so we put it two cards down so everyone gets an even number of, of plays with three players don't put it that far down the deck. Put it about a third of the way up, but make sure everyone gets an even number of turns. Um, and then the game actually does work. You're right, it's better with four. With three players, you have a bit more of a kingmaker issue there, like a lot of three-player games. Four is the sweet spot. Okay, that's it from me. Ronan, would you like to talk us through your final reasonings behind putting this into the game pit vault, bearing in mind that a full rendition of Viva Las Vegas will lose you points? Anyway, Lords of Vegas is pure, unadulterated, social interaction fun. If you're playing a game about Vegas, what do you expect? You expect money flowing around the place, you expect dice rolls, you expect shouting, you expect dirty dealing, you expect a bit of trading backwards and forwards. It is all of those things in a 90-minute package thrown together. You're going to be 
friends with people one minute, you're going to be enemies with them the next minute, but then that's going to be forgotten because something's going to change. It's about situational thinking. It's about timing. It's about thinking on your feet. Forget your Euro engines, planning miles and miles ahead. Get into turning on your brain, being sharp, being active, being a shark, making money, scoring points, and being the Lords of Vegas. So next up for me, for inclusion into the Game Pit Vault, is Pillars of the Earth. It's the 2006 release from Mayfair Games. Designed by Michael Reineck, who did Cuba, Fortuna, World Without End, and Witch of Salem. And Stefan Stadler, who collaborated with Michael on Cuba and Fortuna. The player numbers are 2 to 4 without the expansion. And the playing time is... Suggested at 120 minutes, could go a little bit over that in some games. It's based on the Ken Follett novel. You play the role of a 13th century builder seeking to earn the right to contribute to the construction of the finest cathedral in England. Using your master builders and workmen, players must strive to keep a fragile balance between earning gold to fund their endeavours and scoring victory points. How do you play this game then? Each player starts with Three master builders, 12 workers, one is a large one worth five and seven small worth one each, and three craftsmen. The craftsmen will allow you to turn raw material into victory points or give you gold, etc. Each round is divided into three phases, and they are as follows. Phase one is where you choose your building material cards and craftsmen. So at the bottom of the board, two craftsmen and seven material cards are placed near the board. Players will now have the chance to claim them one at a time. If a player passes, they are out for the remainder of the phase. So the material cards have a purchase number and a reward number. The purchase number is the amount of workers you will need to assign to get the card. And the reward, obviously, is the amount of material that you will get back. The main materials in the game are wood, sand and stone. To claim the craftsman, you must pay the gold amount stated on the card. You may then add this card to your other craftsman, but you may never exceed five in total unless you have a power that allows you to do so. That's phase one. Phase two is a really interesting one for me. It's one of the things that set this game aside for me. All of your master builders are placed into a bag and drawn randomly, one at a time. And as they come out, they are placed on a cost track, numbering from seven to zero. The player whose colour is chosen must decide if they are willing to pay the amount in gold to place their master builder on the board or pass. This continues until all the pieces have been drawn, placed or passed. Once this is done, the players may now place the passed on master builders for free in the order that they were originally drawn out. So basically, by coming out early, you have the opportunity to place first but you do have to pay for it by waiting until the end it's a lot cheaper but you take the risk that things are going to be gone that you want to place your workers on so where can you place your master builder on the board i hear you ask you have the bishop's seat which is protection from events you have a place where you can take an advantage card advantage cards are basically cards that do exactly what they say on the tin and give you little advantages in the game 
you have a straight up victory point place on the board. There's a two and a one victory points section. You have the King's Court, which is uh, the, where the tax is dealt with. You need to place a player there to get tax amnesty, because at the end of each round, everyone's going to be taxed. You can take extra craftsmen. There's two craftsmen placed on the board. You can place, and the first person on gets to choose between the two, and the other one gets the last one. You can take two extra workers for the next round, so it builds your pool of workers into a bigger pool so you can get more materials. You have the market. Now, the market is all about buying and selling your materials. If you've got metal, it's worth quite a lot, but you might want to get rid of some of the wood that you've built up, etc. It works as, as much as the market does. And there's also a spot on the board for the next start player, which can be quite important. After this is all done, which is the main bulk of the game, the choosing of the resources, getting more craftsmen into your hand, and then placing your master builders on the board to get those all-important additional powers. Phase 3 is basically a case of moving around the board and resolving everything before you start the new round. In this phase, you will do things like draw the event card. I haven't talked about the event cards. The events are cards that are going to affect everybody. There is, as I said, the bishop's seat, which provides you protection from these events if you so choose. You can collect all your earned resources. So all the workers that you placed on material cards that you picked up and placed your workers, there you get to take those resources. You get to pick up the advantage cards and craftsmen that you placed your master builders next to. You pay your taxes. Now, taxes will depend on the roll of a dice ranging from two to five. But as I said, you can be exempt from this. This is when you buy and sell at the market, and then you also can collect your extra workers. At the end of the round, players will use their craftsmen to convert the material to victory points, and one stage of the cathedral is placed on the board. This is actually represented by wooden pieces of a cathedral which is one of the really cool aspects of this game for me, is that you actually build the cathedral in the middle of the board. There are six rounds, and the winner is the player with the most victory points at the end of the game. So why am I trying to put this game in the vault? We'll start where I always start. Component quality. Absolutely amazing component quality in this. The board is absolutely stunning. Everything is clear, and it's numbered, just in case it's not. The player pieces are well designed, and I know I'm being really geeky, but the box insert is definitely a keeper. It's beautiful. It stores those cathedral places in the right order. It looks lovely. I love the fact that you actually build the cathedral, as I've said. Also, each part of the cathedral represents the first player marker. So you're not just passing around a random first player marker. You actually giving the first player that part of the cathedral and then they will place it on the board at the end of the round. Although this is basically a worker placement game, with a little hand management thrown in, it does things in a different way to other worker placement games. The things that it does different really don't feel tacked on at all. It's these little twists, the master builders coming out, for instance, and the fact that you're not just putting workers on the board, you're actually picking cards and those cards obviously as they go your choices become limited and people are going to get things that you wanted maybe on your second go and as i said the master builders do you want to spend seven gold gold is quite hard to come by in this game do you want to spend seven gold 
to get on that piece that you desperately want to play. You've got to make that decision as well as the decision on what where you want to go on the board. And I think that adds an element of apprehension and that just general excitement of whose piece is going to come out. Maybe you want your pieces to come out early. Maybe you'd want them to come out late. Then you don't have to spend that money and go back to when everything gets chosen again. It's these twists that make this game stand out from the crowd. The game can appear as though it will be difficult to understand, but it's really not. Once you have a round under your belt, the game flows really well. This is one of the first worker placement games I ever played. It's one of the first Euro games I ever played, and it was way, way, way at the beginning of my love for board games. I got it almost straight away. I was actually quite good at it almost straight away, but... I could see the other strategies being employed by the the more experienced players. It's one of those. You can pick it up straight away. You can actually do quite well because it it doesn't all make sense. But there are other strategies. And the more you play, the more you delve into this game. Interaction. Now, how many worker placement games is there really interaction? The master builder draw gives you that interaction. And the card draw gives you that interaction. I love my worker placement, but it's one of the things that I really, really wish they could do better. And this is the one game that I can think of that does it well. It brings people into the game. It creates a bit of table chat. That draw when people are like, fingers crossed, they want their piece out um, on four or five because they haven't got seven gold. But then it comes out on seven gold and they haven't got the money to pay for it. And the groans and the chuckles from the other, other people as they know that they've been scuppered. The draw as well. You're relying on people. You're going for your first choice. Or do you go for your first choice because it's going to cost you half your workers or most of your workers? Or do you pick something else up in the hope that somebody's they're going to leave the other thing for you? Again, all, all to do with interaction and working with other players. One of the absolute key factors for me with this game is its replayability. It's a game that I always, always want to play. There's so many avenues to explore. And... The random in this game, which I suppose isn't the most appealing thing for some people, but it's the random in this game that I think makes me want to play it again and again, because you're not going to have the same game twice. You're not going to get the same draws twice. The cards aren't going to come out in the same order twice. So it's that random factor that makes this game replayable. And even exploring the same path as you've gone down, it might not bear the same fruit next time. And I think that's really, really gives this game longevity and just wants, makes it one of those games that you always consider coming down off the shelf. Just to sum up, if you want an easy to get into, enjoyable, thought-provoking Euro-stroke worker placement game that manages to change the normal mechanics And more importantly, make those changes work, then surely Pillars of the Earth must go into the vault. Rodent, hit me. Sean, Pillars of the Earth is just a game in which you turn cubes into points as efficiently as possible again. It's not that. I've already gone through how this game does it differently. There's a lot of worker placement games out there, and a lot of good worker placement games out there, that Do just that and do it nicely. Do it well. The game that I think is most like this game is Stone Age. But this has the extra twists that Stone Age doesn't really have. The randomness in it and the draws and the 
interaction, bring it above the pile and make it stand out as a unique gaming experience. This game is just showing its age. Worker placement has developed since 2006. It's become cleverer, quicker and more interactive nowadays. Has it though? I don't think there's a more clever way of implementing the worker placement mechanic than this game. I think this game does do sort of things differently to every other worker placement. There are good worker placements that have come out, absolutely. Things like Lords of Waterdeep, and we've talked about the Manhattan Project. But they're all quite, in their essence, quite bog standard, and they just do what they do, and they do it well. This one does twist it up, and it's the complete opposite. It's not doing the same things at all. And for such an old game, I think that's the beauty of it, and it still stands out as being unique for me after seven years it's still standing out ahead of the pack for being unique and trying to do the the worker placement mechanic slightly different all too often there is nowhere useful or fun to place either type of worker when it comes to place them you either chuck those workers in for gold you might not really need or your master builders just get put in whatever spaces are left there definitely is a clamour for those initial spots. And I think that's to be found in any worker placement game. You're going to clamour for the best spots. There's certain things that you are going to need and people are going to know you're going to need. So that they might try and block you. So there's definitely... But that's where the master builder things come in. It's it's do you, do you want to spend the money to get them there? Do you... Where the card draft, do you really want to drop nine of your workers just to get that bit of wood you need you might only need one wood it might be the only wood card out there do you really want to spend nine of your workers to get five wood when you only really need one it's all about the decisions and yes towards the end there's going to be spaces that you don't really fancy and they're not really useful to you but then you can always go into the market and try and buy and sell your resources there's there's multiple spots in the market to do that the master builder draw is just too random and too lucky. There is luck involved. Of course there is. The fact that you've got to have, if you do come out first, you've got to have the money to do it. So you can plan ahead and hope that you get those that money behind you to get those early placements. And if you don't, it does let you to play for a lot less money or even free. Once you hit the zero marker, then you're getting your placement for free. So somebody might have placed for seven points and you only start off with, uh, I think the, the first player starts off with 20 and it goes up in increments of one. So you might only start with 20 gold and seven is a big chunk out of your, your income. So I think it does balance itself out and the luck will come around if you do want to get that first draw. You, you're not, you have to be very unlucky in six rounds not to get your master builder out in the first two or three those events each round are completely random and just do not fit in with the theme of the game i like the events i like the fact that they're random i like the fact that you do have to think ahead and plan and try and get into that into that bishop spot to stop yourself being affected the events they affect everyone apart from obviously that person and I just think it adds a bit of humour and a bit of interaction to the game. And I, I, I like it for that. And I think 
that's one of the things that just makes it takes it away from being a bog standard worker placement. It's impossible to implement a proper long-term strategy in this game. Oh, it's not impossible. There's definitely strategies you can employ. Sometimes you are going to struggle to, in a round maybe, to get into the spots you need. But ultimately, your broader strategy, you're going to be able to follow it and see how it goes. You can definitely try and go for gold and build up your gold resources so that you can buy a lot of really, really top craftsmen. I didn't say it, but the craftsmen get better as the game goes on. So by the end, you're going to need a lot of money to be able to get the really good craftsmen. So you can go for that. You can go for just bringing lots of resources in and buying and selling them in the market. I know that's something that you saw recently, Ronan, people making real effective use of the market. You can go for the advantage cards, which can help you on your journey. There's, there's loads of ways to go, and I don't think you can get, ever get completely scuppered if you choose an avenue to go down. It's completely abstract. It could be about anything. I could be putting on a horse show. I think the fact that you're building the actual cathedral and you get that sense of achievement at the end. And I think everyone gets it. I know there's going to be a winner and there's going to be a loser. Usually me, the loser. But I think you do get that sense of achievement that you've all you've all done well. You've, you've made this thing in the middle. And I think if you do kind of forget what the game's about, that's always going to remind you that you've got this thing being constructed in the middle of the board. Again, something else that brings this game above the mundane and above the norm. This game is absolutely no good at lower player counts. I will agree. I think, to say it's absolutely no good, I've had some decent two-player games, but I think the four is optimum. And I think actually with the expansion, which brings it up to six players, I think is really, really good. Possibly a bit on the long side, but it's, there's a lot of interaction and a lot of fun. But I think four is optimum with the base game. When working out efficiency in the game, it's all about fractions. Am I sending five workers for three bits of sand or one for one or two for three? It's all working out fractions Everyone hates fractions. Well, I'm not sure that everybody hates fractions. You've, you've, you've alienated the whole section of the community there. Well done. The it's, Fraction Support League have all just turned off. <laughs> it's decisions. You have to make decisions. That's what makes the game. It's, it's a good game. Because of that, you have to work out, is it worth going for things? Of course you do. You have to in your mind plan ahead to make sure you have the resources should you need to go down that path so i completely disagree with that there's too much going on for non-gamers but there's too much random and too little planning for actual gamers the game doesn't suit anyone that's absolute madness non-gamers can pick this game up i was practically a non-gamer and i picked this game up there's plenty going on for seasoned gamers depths to this game that you'll discover the more you play it it's the complete opposite of that statement people will be able to step off the street and play this game it's not the easiest game to get if it's your first ever game it's not exactly a gateway game but it is easy to pick up it will take you a round or so to pick up and then you will be flying and seasoned gamers can get whatever they put into this game out of it because it is a deep game and it's a thought-provoking game 
This game is just average unless you add in the expansion. I don't want to have to buy an expansion to make a game into something really special. No, I think the expansion does add to it, as every good expansion does. But the base game on its own is fantastic. It's a wonderful game. If you're into worker placements, pick up the base game and that's all you'll need. Three friends and you will be able to play this game and absolutely love it. You won't get a better worker placement. Okay, Sean, would you like to sum up why you think that Pillars of the Earth should make it into the vault? Again, I think I've covered most aspects, but as I said, it's it's enjoyable. It's thought-provoking and it changes up the mechanics of worker placement to a point where it does poke its head above the crowd. So the last game up for submission into the vault this time around is Tigris and Euphrates, which is a 1997 game designed by Rainer Knizia. Now, Rainer Knizia is a superstar game designer. TNE's is highest ranked game that he's designed. He's also done games in the top 150 like Ra, Samurai, Battleline, Amun Ray, Taj Mahal, Modern Art. He's designed dozens and dozens and dozens of games and continues to do so in the 16 years it's been out this has been printed by many different companies but i think the main company that you'll find it from in english is mayfair games again so same as lords of vegas they've they've got so many games out steam settlers of Catan, london automobile pillars of the earth even which sean just talked about another big publishing company now, Tigris and Euphrates plays for between two to four players, although I would always recommend playing with four players. And it says it takes about 90 minutes. And I'd say that's about right. 90 minutes is, is just about how long it takes. Tigris and Euphrates is pretty much an abstract tile-laying game in which players are going to be laying tiles upon a map, which is split into squares, and they're going to be scoring points for laying these tiles down. Players don't play in a particular colour, they just have a symbol, be that bull, archer, potter or lion. And they're represented on the board by four wooden discs that they have which are called their leaders. And the wooden disc corresponds to the four colours of the tiles. Now the tiles are black, red, blue and green and they're settlements, temples, farms and markets. The map is originally seeded with nine red temples spread around the board. Now temples are important because players can't score points unless their leaders are on the board, but their leaders can't be on the board unless they're adjacent to temples. Temples support leaders. Those original temples are also seeded with natural coloured goods, which act as wild cards when scoring. And I'll explain how scoring works. So you have the four different colour tiles, and there are cubes that correspond to those four different colours. And as you play tiles, and as you have conflicts between you, you're going to be collecting cubes in those colours. Now, the interesting thing about this is, it's not the highest number of cubes you have that scores your points. It's the lowest number of cubes you have. So, in the four colours, black, red, blue and green, if, for example, I had eight black, eight red, six blue and three green, my score at the end of the game would be three. 
So you're looking for a balance all the way through this game. You're looking to balance out playing down the tiles in order to score points in all the different colours. If there's a tie at the end of the game, for example, if the next best player had scored three as well, you'd then go to your second lowest score. So my score would be 3-6. And if another player had 3-7, they would beat me. So all the way through, we need to keep that in consideration. Players receive from the bag a random draw of six tiles to start with. And at the end of everyone's turn, anyone who's used tiles is going to draw back up to six again. So you always have six to choose from. Now, the reason that might happen on anyone's turn is because there are conflicts in this game and they're a key part of the game. How do you score points? Well, firstly, you need to have your leader on the board. And that leader in that color allows you to score points in that color. So, for example, if I played my green leader onto the board and then attached to the same area he's, as he's attached to, I lay down a green tile, that scores me one green point. And then any green tiles that get added to that collection of tiles, that kingdom as it's called, on the board, while my green leader is there, is going to give me one green cube. So if someone else chose to play a green into that kingdom, while my green leader is there, I get a green cube. So you're looking to get all your leaders down of all the different colours. There are other ways of scoring points, and that's by building monuments and by winning conflicts. But I'll come to them in a minute and tell you how they work. So what do you do on your terms? Each player gets to do two actions on their turn, and these are what they can do. They can move, withdraw, or place a leader. So if you have a leader on the board, you can move it to somewhere else. You must move it to somewhere else that is adjacent to temples. Moving the leader or placing a leader somewhere on the board can cause one of the two types of conflicts in the, in the game. And the conflicts are called internal conflicts or external conflicts. Uh, so internal conflicts are something like civil wars. So that's a war that happens in a kingdom uh, and it, it doesn't affect in the kingdom other than one of the two leaders is going to get kicked out. External conflicts is when two kingdoms join together and I'll talk about them in just one minute. Either type of conflict is going to be triggered when there are two of the same colour leader of you know, different players in any kingdom that's joined up. This one we're talking about now is if you move a leader into a kingdom that already has a leader of that colour. So if I take my black leader and I pop it into a kingdom that already has a black leader, those two leaders are going to fight. In internal conflicts, in civil wars, it's all about those temples. Remember I said that leaders must have temples to support them, so they must have at least one orthogony adjacent to be able to be placed. But they can have up to four. Now, that's their strength for these internal conflicts. If I went and placed my leader into a space that had two red tiles adjacent to it, my strength at the moment is two for that war. If the person who was sitting there already in that colour, so let's say Sean had a black leader in there already, and that was adjacent to only one red temple, well then his current strength is one. As the aggressor, in all conflicts, I get the chance to play tiles first. So in this case, because it's an internal conflict based on those red temples, I can add red tiles from my hand to my score. So let's say, for example, I had two red tiles behind my screen, because people can't see the tiles you have. I take those two tiles, add them into the conflict. I had two support in my black leader when I placed him, plus the two I've added from my hand. So my score is now four. Sean's black leader is sitting next to one temple, so his defensive score is currently one. He now has a chance to play tiles from his hand to add to his score. And as the defender, he only has to tie to win. So if he had three red tiles behind his screen, he would have the choice of playing those, making the tie, and therefore winning the conflict. If that were to happen, my leader would be removed from the board and Sean would score one red point. 
If it's the other way around and Sean wasn't able to get to my score of four, he didn't have them or he chose not to, his leader would be removed and I would score one red point. So you do that action in order to take control of kingdoms. Why would you want to take control of kingdoms? You know, you're only scoring one red point for this move. It's no more efficient than just playing a tile down to score you a point. Well, the reason is because kingdoms will build up and they'll build up in different colors of tiles and then they will become powerful. So, for example, the, the, the power of a kingdom in a color is the number of tiles of that color in there. Now, why is this power important? It's because you can use tiles to join together two kingdoms. And that's the next action you can do as part of your turn is just to place a tile. So if you place a tile onto a kingdom normally, for example, if my black leader is in position and I place a black tile, I score one black point. Same as I said before with the greens and, and so on and so forth. The only different thing being is that um, these farms, the blue tiles, they must go on the river spaces connected, which represent the Tigris and the Euphrates. Other than that, you can place tiles anywhere. Play a tile, score one point. However, if you play a tile, that joins together two kingdoms, that's two areas that have leaders in them, you may start a war. Now, the tile you place to, to join the two kingdoms doesn't score you any points, and it gets a special tile just for now, put over the top, so it's sort of like a handshake tile to show this one's joining them. You then check this whole big kingdom now that you've joined together, and if there are two leaders of the same colour, they'll have to be on either side of that border, there's no other way of it happening, they are going to have a conflict. Now, the way you do these external conflicts, these wars, is you add up the number of tiles for the person on one side of that handshake tile, and you add up the number of tiles for the person on the other side. So let's say it was a green battle, and from the green kingdom I was moving from, I had five green tiles in there. My strength in this war is now currently five. Let's say Sean was the other side of the handshake tile, and he had four green tiles on his side with his green leader there. So his strength is now four. Same as when you're doing internal, I now get a chance to add tiles towards my, my combat score. However, it's not necessarily in reds now, that's for internals. This is now in whatever colour the two leaders are the same. So in the example I'm giving, it's green. So I can add, let's say I add three green tiles to my score. So I had five in place on the board, I add three from my hand, my score's now eight. Sean's got a score of four. Now if he has four green tiles, again as the defender, if he adds them, he's able to win on the tie. Let's say Sean doesn't have four green tiles or he chooses not to use them. I then win that green conflict. And what happens there is Sean must remove his green leader and all the green tiles on his side of the joining tile, that handshake tile. So they all come off. Now for that green leader and the green tiles, I score one point in each. So that would be five green points I'd score there by placing one tile. That goes to show you how important it is, these conflicts in the game. Most other ways, you're just scoring one point here and one point there. But if you can get control of kingdoms with large areas, then attack other kingdoms that have got tiles and try and win is the key. You can score lots of points at once and suddenly your score starts jumping up and around the place. And that's part of the real strategy in the game is knowing when and where to go and where to attack and how to take advantage of other people's perceived weaknesses. One other type of thing you can do on your turn is place a tile called a catastrophe tile. Now, catastrophe tiles basically blow up the space you put them on. It makes them useless for the rest of the game. Now, why you'd want to do that is usually either to block someone from coming near you or you might do it in order to break up a kingdom. So let's say someone has the red leader all the way over to one side of a kingdom and it's joined to a big area of red strength only by one single corridor of tiles, you know, a single file. I could place my catastrophe down on that single file, 
break up the kingdom, then pop my red leader in where all those red tiles are now there with no red leader. It gives you a chance to kind of mess with the board a bit, break up where people think they've been building themselves up. That's how you play the game. You play tiles, you move your leaders, you cause conflicts. You score victory points by playing tiles or by winning conflicts. The last thing you can do to score points is you can build monuments. Now, if you manage to get in a kingdom, it doesn't matter who's placed them, whoever places the last one, a square of four of the same colour, you've got a choice now in which you can flip those four over and you can make a monument. So what a monument is, is it's a piece of wood with two different colours on it and one of the colours must be the colour of tiles you flip. So if I make a four square of green and I flip them, I'm going to choose a monument that has green in it and one other colour. And every turn, at the end of their turn, whoever's leader is connected in those colours, so let's say I chose green and black, whoever's green leader was connected to the monument, whoever's black leader is connected to the monument, are going to score an income of one cube. They don't have to place tiles to do that. So that's also an important consideration. Building monuments weakens your kingdom, but it gives you the only way of getting a regular income in a certain colour. And obviously, those monuments become well fought over and people are trying to get hold of them, especially as the game goes on and you're more aware of what area of your weakness is. You know, I've got lots of blue cubes and black cubes, but I need some green cubes. Is there a green monument anywhere? Can I get in there somewhere? I also mentioned right at the beginning there those, those neutral tiles, those goods, those cubes on around the place. Now, if you join two kingdoms together and they both have a, one of those neutral cubes in them whoever has the green leader in the now joined up kingdom gets to take one of those cubes and then that adds to your score so if my score was four seven eight eight and i had three neutral cubes i can add them to the four to make my score suddenly seven so they're very powerful they're very handy to get they're also one of the two ways that triggers the end of the game at the end of someone's turn if there are two or less of those goods left on the game the game ends also at the end of someone's turn, if they're unable to replenish their hands, anyone's unable to replenish their hand back up to six tiles, the game ends. Everyone then reveals their cubes, because your cubes have been hidden all game behind your player screen. You add them up, most points wins. And that is how you play Tigris and Euphrates. Now, why do I love it so much? Well, this is very much the epitome of simple rules makes an interesting game. I just explained the game to you. All you're doing is placing tiles or moving leaders. That's all you can do on the game. But there are so many possibilities. It's so wide open. On every turn, there are multiple paths you can take which are valid and will score you points. It's also got that very interesting scoring mechanism. It's something you must be aware of. You have to always be scrambling around to try and get points in your weakest area you might decide early to, to just build up in a certain area you know get lots of greens and lots of reds and i don't have to worry about them so much later i can then concentrate on getting blues and blacks but do the tiles come out for you where's the best area to get blues and blacks where is it that you can get in in order to attack to score lots of points at once what you're trying to do is there a monument that's looking a bit weak you know am i stocking up these red tiles in order to jump my leader in somewhere and attack someone always lots and lots of interesting things to do wide open strategy it's there's certainly no dictated path to victory here you also must be aware of what other people are doing and their strategies you can try and keep track of how they're scoring to try and see what they need so you're not handing them points you're not making it easier for them to to score for example when you start an external conflict between two kingdoms 
it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to fight there and it doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be a fight of just one colour. I could join two kingdoms that have all four leaders in both of them and now there's a possibility that there's going to be fights in all four colours and it could be other people who are fighting. I might not even be involved. So if someone's weak in a certain area, I don't want to be setting up a war for them in which they've got a chance of winning and suddenly scoring lots of points by removing those tiles from the board. So you can tell it's hugely, hugely interactive. What everyone else is doing affects what you can do. You're going to be attacking each other. You're going to be building up areas of strength. You're going to be trying to jump in. You're going to be trying to take opportunities. You're going to be trying to see the chinks in people's armors, where they've left themselves exposed, and try and get in there and try and score points. It is abstract. It is kind of themeless. There's not a lot of theme going on there, but it's far, far from dry. It's cutthroat and it's bloodthirsty and you have to be willing to attack each other at the right time. You must utilise other people's mistakes in order to get ahead in the game. In normal kind of games, you're looking to build up a power base and an area of strength. But if you start going and doing that and building up in just one colour you, you, you're going to spend too long going in one direction it's not possible it's not possible to just spend half the game just building up a massive huge black kingdom in order to stop anyone else from, from coming near you because what about your other three colours what are you going to do there how are you going to get those points that black kingdom is not going to help you get blue cubes do you choose to make a monument that's interesting because the monument will give you that income, but it will automatically weaken your kingdom. If if I take four green tiles out of play, because when you flip them, they no longer count towards your strength, am I making myself wide open to someone coming in from outside and attacking in on green and, and suddenly blowing me up and then taking control of my monument? Or if I make that monument, do I have enough red tiles to defend myself? Is someone else just going to jump in with their with their green leader, for example, or black leader, whatever, whatever the relevant colour is, and suddenly take the monument from me? So I've done all the hard work, but I get none of the benefits. How to use those disaster tiles? They can be hugely powerful. You can really mess with people's strategies. You can just hit a disaster down and pop yourself down. And suddenly you're in a position of power when someone else thought they were in a position of power. You can cut off access to monuments using them. If someone's con you know low in black and suddenly they get in on a black monument, bang! There's a disaster tile. You're not going to get that income. You're going to have to work hard again in order to get in on that monument. Very interesting. You've only got two of them to use in the game. Each player has. But they can be very powerful. The game is constantly in flux. You're constantly looking at the timing of moves. You're constantly looking at how the board is developing. You're, you're attempting to influence the development of the board to make it develop in a way that is beneficial to yourself. You must be aware of what everyone's doing. You must be aware of what all the possibilities are, all the connotations, all the connotations of each move you make. Are you opening up? Are you attacking someone to make them weak so someone else can attack? We've seen it recently. Sean did it. They attacked someone in a colour, got them to spend all their defensive tiles, and then just with one tile attacked them straight away with his second action and got in and stole something from them. It's very wide open, strategic, yet tactical, and it's extremely interesting. Sean, what have you got to say about Tigris and Euphrates? This game looks tired and dated and doesn't inspire any excitement. I can't answer nonsense. That's as simple as that. In terms of looks, it does look dry. It's it's tiles in four colours. You go on and playing on a beige board. There's wooden cubes. You know, it's it's not an easy sell to a younger audience, shall we say? What was the other thing you said that it was boring or dated or some nonsense like that? It's cutthroat. It's vicious. Everything matters. Every single action affects every player on the board. The only way I think you could think this is boring is if you haven't engaged with the game. I think there is a slight, because of its looks, there's a slight barrier there for people to kind of go, 
you know, this this isn't very interesting. I'm just putting tiles down. It's like Carcassonne, but less interesting. No, 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 no. Get past that. Get in and see the gameplay underneath. Get involved in it, and you will find a beauty. The bland nature of the components, especially the leaders, makes it difficult to see conflict and scoring. I think that if the components were too razzle-dazzle, it would be impossible to see what was going on. It's, I think, something we discussed with Dominant Species before, and that from, from just an overview of the map, because there are so many possibilities, you have to be able to just have simple information coming at you, because it's not lots of information on each tile that you need. It's the whole kind of step back and see what's going on in a pattern. In terms of the leaders, I mean, they have the... The icon is the icon of whichever kingdom you are, and they're in the colour of whatever colour they are. All right, they're not fantastic looking, they're little wooden discs, but they're functional, they do the job, and they help you to assimilate a lot of information at once. It's not intuitive and takes way too long to work out what you're doing, and by that time, you don't really care. It's not intuitive, you're right. It's a game that rewards investment. I don't think it's a game that on your first game you're going to start playing and 10 minutes in suddenly you have an idea what's going on. Because the story of the game develops, because how you score points develops, because the map develops, you're going to have to play at least one game before you realise, okay, I can see where this is going now. And then your second game, you'll start kind of realising that early moves by people mean something later on. And I think that's brilliant. It's a game you learn. And in fact, it's one of those games whereby you get better and then you get worse, and then you get better again and then you get worse because you're trying to overthink things. And then you realise, no, I've gone too far. No, that, that strategy doesn't quite work. And this, you know, a strategy that worked on a map that developed in a certain way last time is not going to work on this map because it hasn't developed that way. You know, there's less monuments, there's more monuments. There's one huge kingdom, there's lots of smaller kingdoms. And, and you have to adapt to what's going on on the board and, and again, take your opportunity. So it's not a game to bosh out and everyone's going to be laughing and giggling within 10 minutes. It's a game to play for 90 minutes, sit there, digest it, play it again, digest it, play it again, and play it again, and keep playing it because it's brilliant. This game isn't accessible to a huge section of the gaming world. It will not appeal at all to casual gamers or new gamers. No, it won't appeal to casual gamers or new gamers. Does that make it a bad game? Does that mean it's not worth a place in the vault? This is for the best of the best. This is for a certain type of gamer who wants something thinky, who wants to have their brain really exercised, who wants to have to consider situations in a ways that they don't normally have to consider them. That's what it's for. That's who it's aimed at, and that's how it works. I don't think it makes any apologies for that. This is one of the heavier games. Well, it's not that long. There's lots of thinking you have to do in order to play it well. You have to learn the game to come very good at the game. I'm not going to apologise for that. That's just what this game is. It is a gamer's game. For such a strategic game with a lot of thought involved, the luck element with the tile draws are way too high and can determine who wins far more often than is reasonable. There is a certainly amount of luck in the tile draw, but I think the only way, way in which the tile draw can really hose you is if you don't draw red tiles. That's the only thing that happened. And yeah, it is possible, but there are more red tiles than the other tile in the game. So you'd have to get really unlucky not to do it because red tiles allow you to get your leader into areas. So let's say, for example, I don't draw any green tiles during the game, but I do draw red tiles. I can use my red tiles to get into a strong green kingdom by attacking the leader in there 
And then, using that strong green kingdom, I can attack other kingdoms in green and score points from winning those conflicts. So the fact that I haven't drawn any green doesn't really matter. I can still score green points by using my red tiles. It's when you don't draw the red tiles that you can get kind of screwed over because if your leaders are constantly getting kicked off the board and you can't defend against it, that's when you could be in problems. Now, I think it's pretty rare it's going to happen that badly, but okay, there is a slight issue there with that. There is a problem in the game where a player can be effectively out of the running well before the end of the game. It's a game you have to play well to win, you know. It's not, there's no catch-up mechanism. It's not soft and cuddly. It's not, you know, whoever's in last score three points, whoever's second last score two points and all that sort of nonsense. Again, I'm not going to apologise for that. that. That's the type of game it is. This is a game where you're best off with four people who not even necessarily know the game, but are aware what they're getting into. They're getting into a game where you're not all going to be looking after each other. It's not all soft and cuddly. It is a war game in an abstract form, laying tiles. What do you expect from a war game? So, yeah, okay, you could be out of the running, but you actually, more often than not, you think you're out of the running, and it's a lot tighter than you think it's going to be. Okay, that's it from me, Ronan. Do you want to just say a few more words about Tigris and Euphrates? Tigris and Euphrates is a gamer's game, a relatively heavy game, and a classic. It takes us back to kind of the old school board games where we don't need chrome, you don't need lots of flavor text, you don't need a story. You develop the story yourself. It's about you against the other players, who's going to win. It's a challenge, and it's one of the best game experience you could possibly have. Okay, so you've heard us talk about the four games that we've nominated to go forward to the vault. And myself and Sean have made our cases for the two games we'd like to go in. And the other person has played Devil's Advocate and tried to pick on some of the negative comments you hear about those games. Now what we're going to do is actually talk about what we really think about the other person's games, how we've experienced them, and how we think they're worthy for the vault. And then we're going to have a chat, and we're going to try and knock these four candidates down to two, and then somehow thrash those two down to one, and work out which game is going to find its way into the vault. So, Sean, what do you really think of Lords of Vegas? Well, first off, these are four fantastic games, and for different reasons. I am a big fan of Lords of Vegas. It's a very involving, interactive game. I really love the trade aspect of the game and the way that you do interact with each other and it isn't scripted and it's not part, essentially, of the of the game round, but it's there. Very much like Spartacus. I mentioned Spartacus in my Devil's Advocate bit. The problem for me is that I think that aspect of the game was what I really loved about Lords of Vegas and I think Spartacus does it a little bit better I think it's a great game I love dice games I love that aspect of it I love the fact that you can basically attack people's casinos and try and win control of them yeah you got to play the odds the luck factor isn't ridiculous but it is there but that's is a good thing in my in my thoughts well my main my main problem with the game is that the replayability for me isn't the highest of the four games. 
the other three games I definitely think, in my opinion, are much more replayable and I'm looking to get them out more often. I play Lords of Vegas. I'll always play it if someone says, let's play a game of this, but give me a choice. I think it's probably the, the least of the four. Also, there is an you, element... You, 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 you're talking crazy there. <laughs> you're just talking crazy. Every single game is different than Lords of Vegas. Yeah, fair enough. I, I'm not. It's it's a fantastic game. I think the fact that it's been put forward for the vault, it's a fantastic game. I'm really nitpicking now, and I, I think you have it. to. That's what you think. You already did the nitpicking thing. No, so this is what this is less replayable than Ticket to Ride. Are you mental? I disagree. I I would much rather play Ticket to Ride over and over again because it is simple. It has a niche. It has that spot. I'm not sure that I'd want to invest 90 minutes to two hours in Lords of Vegas all the time. It is a very, very good game, however. But tickets are right 90 minutes to two hours. No, no. Yeah, it does, man. Who are you playing with? (laughs) You. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then, every game I've ever played has taken an hour, so obviously not. I don't like the Kingmaker aspect of it. thought that that you do get to the point if you're not going to win you almost have to decide who is going to win and i didn't like that aspect i little problem with the the backstabby element of it i have been in games where people have actually just taken genuine offense because you haven't done or or haven't made a trade or you've scuppered them at the last minute you can't tell me spartacus does trading better and then you don't like backstabbing (laughs) come on no, no, I don't, I, I, for some reason, in, in Lords of Vegas, people do take a little bit more umbrage. I think Spartacus sets its stall out and says, just go for it, knock yourself out, don't take offence. This game, I don't know, sometimes I get the feeling that people do take offence, and because it is so random, it's not just you stabbing someone in the back, there's a dice roll involved, and they do have the hope to turn it around sometimes, I don't know. I just it's a very, very good game. Following, they act like a married couple, that's why. <laughs> I think that's just those two it's not the game well one of the people you just mentioned there took absolute umbrage and barely talked to me for an hour after the game well that's droppy limb so that's what he does <laughs> bless him but yeah it's a fantastic game I mean it really is it's when we first played it it really was everyone got around the table and was like what are you playing and everyone was got invested in it in fact well, yeah wonderful game but for me it's my least favourite of the four Oh, right. Let's talk about least favourite of the four, shall we? Tickets are right. <laughs> Off your pop. <laughs> Again, it's a good game, all right? That's all, though. It's just a good game. It's mindless fun. It's, do you know what? I've just played a four-hour game of Through the Ages. I need to relax for a little bit. Let's get out Ticket to Ride, because I certainly don't have to do any thinking in that game. Oh, look, take a green, take a green, take a blue. It's pretty, my hand of cards, lovely. It's not that simple. There is an element of thinking in it. There's really not. There really is. Look at my destination tickets. Oh, look, those ones are close to each other. I'll just take them. Now let's collect the pretty colours and put the trains down. There you go, you've just thought. (laughs) It's, like you said, a hundred times. It is fun. It has its place. 
I don't even think it's the best gateway game around. Not even close. I just think it is a good game. I think it's been overtaken by other gateway games, which I'd rather play with people than this. Also, it's a game that, because of that kind of themelessness and, and it's pretty abstract, when I've taught it to groups, maybe a quarter, a third of the time, it just has fallen completely flat. With lots... I mean, uh, you know, I'm not ever going to play this with a group of gamers, right? I can't see myself on a Thursday going around for gaming day and we go, ah, let's play Ticket to Ride. It's not going to happen. It's usually with people who are pretty new to games. And when I find that when people are pretty new to games, you need to get a hook somewhere. You need to somehow get their interest. And Ticket to Ride, it's pretty hard to get people's interest. So I'm not sure it even does the job that well as a gateway game. Don't, you know, it's not for no one. People are going to say, oh yeah, it worked for them, it worked for them, it was my first game, it got me into games. Yeah, it works for some people. But I don't think it's the best game for getting people into games. It's not thematic enough. Uh, and like I say, I don't want to rag on it too much. It's good, but it's not one of the best games ever made. I think it's the, one of the best games of its type. It was important to me that we get a lighter game into this because we do talk about things like Arkham Horror. You've talked about Tigris Dude, and stuff Dominion. like that. Dominion went in last time. <laughs> Dominion's got, but Dominion's got so many facets to it and so much depth to it. This is just a light, fun. You can play with your kids. You can play with your family. You can play with newbies. You can play with seasoned gamers. That's what I wanted. And that's, that's one of the things I think is important. Even if this doesn't go in, I think it's important that we represent all sides of the board gaming world and not just the deep thinky games. I, I, I know what you're saying. I just think, you know, Lupin Louie is better than Ticket to Ride. Lupin Louie nearly got a nomination. It may well get Fantastic. <laughs> or, you know, I think Lords of Waterdeep is a better gateway game than, than Ticket to Ride. Or, you know, Dixit. This is all about opinions. So, yes. moving on. Tigris, Tigris and Euphrates. I had my first Tigris and Euphrates experience in the not-too-distant past. When the game was being explained to me by your very good self, I was like, what the hell is going on? When you took the game out of the box, this bland map with these basic pieces... I mean, what were these lion heads and these archers and this bit of pottery? What the hell's going on? Then we started playing it. Still didn't really know what was going on. About two rounds in, I was starting to think this might be the best game I've played in a long, long time. I was just looking at this endless possibility just unraveling in front of me. But if I did that, oh, but maybe he could do that. You just Your mind just opens up to this world of possibility and what you can do with this game. There's boundless limits to this game. It's, and it's such an interactive game. As you said quite rightly, you're always checking out what people are doing and what they're, why they're doing it and what's he up to. And, oh, do I dare attack him? because I really need to get into that section. Oh, he's built a temple. I could do it linking up with that because I'm really low on this color. I love the scoring mechanism where your lowest scores count first. So you've got to keep an eye on everything. You can't just go absolutely mental for red and just build up 40 reds and leave everything else to... Or to even to die. draw four reds would be nice. <laughs> yeah, you didn't do so well in the last game, did you? <laughs> Never teach a game, right? 
<laughs> but for anyone you know, who knows the game, in the entire game, I drew three red tiles. <laughs> Going into, I got all, all my leaders kicked off the board three times in the game. I didn't do that well. Yeah. <laughs> Even I, I didn't know what was going on in terms of the scoring, but even I could tell you were doing a little bit poorly there. <laughs> it's right, I took it in good humour. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're a barrel of laughs. <laughs> but yeah, what what a fantastic game. And it can kick you straight up the bum in terms of that draw. But I think this game is so deep in thinking, you do need that random element just to lighten it a little bit. And it can be, yeah, as I say, it can be frustrating not getting the reds out that you need or the colour you need. I ended up with just hundreds of blue, and I didn't need blue because I had blue coming out of every pore in my body. And all I wanted was greens because greens I had like three or four. So I worked out another way of doing it. I attacked someone with with green. I, I attacked them, and then I attacked from that city, as Roland said. I attached myself to... I attached myself to four monuments. I was getting four different colours every round. And, of course, people weren't too happy with this, so they started attacking me. And, yeah, what a great game. And then you've got the destruction tiles that you can just... are complete game changers and completely can rearrange how the board shapes itself. It's just so much. I bought the app on my iPhone on the back of that because it was so much fun and so I just wanted to explore more. I went to bed dreaming about it that night thinking, oh, I could have done that so much better. I could have done this. Oh, but I did that really well. So, yeah, I think, I think I've think i waxed lyrical enough about it now. What a good game. So you quite liked it then? No, I absolutely hated it, but that was probably the company. <laughs> Poor Bijan. Right. <laughs> 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 um the one thing i will say the problem i have with it um which is not that hard to mitigate but in the rules the game finishes as soon as there's two one or two traders left on the board or as soon as the bag runs out of tiles now if that happens on one person's turn in such a tight game especially in a close game it's huge advantage to them because they can score the one two three top cubes or whatever it might be to make a difference so we've house ruled it for sure that We've we finished the circuit round, okay? Everyone gets an even number of turns. Um, I don't know whether, you know, in his mind, Dr. Knizia had it that there was a reason why it stopped straight away on someone's turn, but it just feels unfair. And once you've lost three or four times because the first player has had one more go than you, which has happened and almost led to violence, you have to house rule it. You have to say, look, everyone gets an even number of turns. Let's go from there. Pillars of the Earth? It is a really good game. One that, uh, yeah, we've been playing for years, pretty much since it just came out and still continue to get out. It looks amazing. It's just such a beautiful game, which makes it more fun to play. It's got lots of interesting elements going on there. Lots of tactical thinking, lots of having to adapt to where you are. I will say, though, as the game comes in the box, it's a very good game, okay? But it's not vault-worthy. When you add in the expansion then it's knocking on the door of the vault. It brings in the mechanic whereby that master builder draw, the luck of it gets mitigated somewhat because you don't put all your master builders in there, all three of them. You only put two in and then one of everyone's colour is to the side and the f as they're drawn, the first person to actually go on the board, their master builder on the side then goes into the last place slot over on the side 
and so on and so forth. The second person goes on, they go in the second last slot. And then when all the master builders from the bag have been used, you go over to those that have been laid to one side. So the last person to go on the board now gets the first one of those. So you can't be drawn out all last or all first. It gets mitigated somewhat. That makes a really big difference. Someone can't get completely hosed on a turn. It also adds in some extra areas. So there's now places where workers can go on crusades you can score points rather than just having to chuck them at the wall mill and, and get gold which you might not particularly need and adds in lots of other extra elements and that's what turns it from like i say a good game into a really good game i think it's a ton of fun i think um there's enough sort of slightly different factors in each game to to keep it interesting there's different cards will become available the different personalities that let you do stuff um it, it is a euro it's really a very very euro game take some of these colored cubes turn them into points it is about slight efficiencies eking out slightly more points than the next person but it adds enough flavor into it that it's not a complete mathematics exercise and i do really like players of the earth it's a really good game right so we come to the point where we need to whittle down to two i will admit that I always thought Ticket to Ride was a, was a tough sell, but as I said, it was more about making the point that it don't have to have really thinky games to have fun and that anybody can play the lighter games and just enjoy them. I think you're wrong. Ticket to Ride is at the absolute forefront of lighter games and gateway games, but I can see that it's possibly not one for the vault. Ticket to ride. We don't choo choo choose you. Didn't. Uh, if I can't do a Simpsons reference, come on. <laughs> right. But now we might have to have an argument because I adore Lords of Vegas. I think it's so much fun. I think it does trading even better than Spartacus. I think it's much more open and you have to trade in it. Spartacus is more threatening rather than trading. <laughs> Whereas Lords of Vegas is about taking areas of opportunity. But. Clearly, from what you said, you prefer T and E. I'm not saying for one second like Lords of Vegas. I think against most games would really, really stand a chance of going all the way, not just to the final two. But you've pulled Tigers from the Euphrates out, and you've put that forward. And I just think that the depth in that game, and it is such a game as game, and I think it would stand proudly in in our vault because. It does stand up and make you take notice of it. I think you're turning this into one of the easiest vault decisions ever. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to insist T&E goes forward ahead of uh, Lords of Vegas, it almost sounds like you prefer T&E to your own nomination of Pillars of the Earth. Oh, not necessarily. I love Pillars of the Earth. I think it's one of my favourite games. It was one of the games that got me into into gaming itself. And I think... As a big fan of worker placement games, I don't think there's anything that does it better. With the possibly Lords of Waterdeep, but that's probably the theme really for me. I think that Pillars of the Earth is just a wonderful, wonderful game. So, does that mean we're going to put T&E forward? I guess I'll put T&E forward, but... Man, people, play Lords of Vegas. It's an amazing game. It's lots of fun, but play it in the right spirit. Okay, T&E and Pillars of the Earth. We've gone all Eurotastic here, haven't we? Yeah, just a little bit. But I don't know, because for me, 
I think I well, I probably slightly prefer Pillars of the Earth as a game. I think I have more fun with Pillars of the Earth. I think T&E makes me think more and has more depth to it and possibly has the longevity edge as well. Pillars of the Earth, I, I don't mind playing it, you know, two or three times a year. It's, it is always fun. It is always interesting. It is always decisions to be made there. But T&E, I could play two or three times a week. And I've played, at the end of the year, I've played a different game every single time. I actually have more fun playing T&E than I have players of the Earth. Players of the Earth is interesting. It's I'm doing a bit of maths and I'm trying to be efficient and I'm trying to take advantage of opportunities to come my way. But I actually, I'm not sure I'm having that much fun. It's, it's enjoyable rather than fun. Does that make any sense? Whereas, no, no. Sorry? None at all. You're talking absolute <laughs> rot. Uh, in my head, it does. Um, but with T&E... And not only am I having fun on my own terms, like, like in Pillars of the Earth, right? If someone else is doing something or using their craftsman or placing their master builder, that's not fun for me. <laughs> I'm not looking at it going, oh, inspiration of Sandini, woohoo! Or, oh, you're going to go to the Priory, that's too, wow, wow, that's, that's so interesting. It's, oh, you've gone there, great, okay, when's it my turn? T&E, everything is interesting. Every move, after you get past the initial sort of placements of building up, once people start interacting, everything becomes interesting everything someone does becomes interesting everything something does changes the board and changes the way you're thinking so it's 90 minutes of processing information rather than you in pillars of the earth it's a 10 second decision wait for a little bit 10 second decision wait for a bit 10 second decision which is cool let's have a drink have a chat relax you know there's nothing too heavy going on tne is an intense pure gaming experience you're obviously thinking about what you're doing. You're planning ahead with your moves. The draw is exciting. You're waiting to see, does your master builder come out? I, li- I love that aspect. I like the fact that there are t- two or three different mechanics all going in and they just marry seamlessly. I do get what you're saying. T&E is just so interactive that everything that everyone does it affects you. If people are having a fight then that's going to affect you because they're going to be thinning down certain kingdoms and other people are going to be in control of kingdoms near you. And are you actually going to be part of that fight because you might be connected eventually? So, yeah, I suppose I, mean, I have more love for T&E than you do for Pillars of the Earth. So it probably looks like T&E is the stronger game here between the two of us. <laughs> the the master builder draw is exciting in in pillars of the earth right it is fun it's funny when someone's got four money left they're desperate to go somewhere and they get drawn out on the five spot cost five spot and things like that okay however isn't it as much fun when people are having a fight and it's quite close and someone adds a certain number of tiles and goes unless you've got four of them i've won and someone pulls out four that's that the same sort of thing where you're looking to see what happens but it, it's actually just as funny and just as interesting and you know, it happens more than six times in the game. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, it's a t- this one, it's, it's a close one for me, but you're obviously, like, absolutely nailed on t and which I can understand. So I, I think, it, again, Pillars of the Earth is really good. It's, it's going to be somewhere in probably my top 30 or 40 games, I would, I would guess, especially with the expansion. You know, that pushes it even higher. But T&E, man, that, that is a top 10 game. That's... It's got to be top 10 for everyone. I can't believe it. Yeah, it's, it's such a good game. It's such a classic. It's amazing. It's currently my number five game. 
I just think it's brilliant. Okay, I think the decision is pretty much made, and I think we can now announce that Tigris and Euphrates is our next entrant into the game vault. You are a wise, wise man, Mr. Rice. Thanks so much for listening to episode 13 of the Game Pit podcast. It was The Vault. Um, Tigris and Euphrates won out this time, and it's going to clamber in there alongside Dominion as our greatest games of all time. You can catch us on 2d6.org along with a whole host of other gaming goodness. You can also find us on Twitter at Game Pit Podcast. And if you want to have a little chat or just ask us any questions, we're contactable on the Game Pit Podcast at gmail.com. Theme by E. Aaron. <laughs> <laughs>